Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father of light, from whom all good gifts come, send your Spirit into our lives with the power of a mighty wind, and by the flame of your wisdom, open the horizons of our minds. Loosen our tongues to sing your praise in words beyond the power of speech. For without your Spirit, we can never raise our voices in words of peace, or announce the truth that Jesus is Lord who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Mary, Mother of Mercy, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Saint Cecilia, pray for us. Saint Faustina, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I want to thank the members of the Third Order for inviting me to come back here and spend this time with you again. It's always a pleasure to be here at uh, St. Cecilia's, especially on uh, Divine Mercy Sunday. On the night of February the 22nd, 1931, in a convent near the village of Plock, Poland, our Lord appeared in a vision to a simple, humble woman, an obscure nun, of the Congregation of the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy, Sister Mary Faustina Kowalska. And in this historic vision, St. Faustina saw the Lord Jesus Christ dressed in white garments, with one hand raised in blessing and the other hand touching the garment near the heart. And from his sacred heart there came beaming two large rays of light, one red and the other white, symbolic of the price of our salvation. The blood and water that flowed from the divine heart pierced by the soldier's lance on the cross. And to St. Faustina, Jesus said, Paint an image according to the pattern that you see with the signature, Jesu, Ufam, Tobia. Jesus, I trust in you. I desire that this image be venerated first in your chapel, then throughout the world. I promise that the soul that will venerate this image will not perish. And our Lord made St. Faustina the modern apostle of divine mercy. And his message to her is his message to all of us and to the whole world. And yet even now, I find that there are many, even among devout practicing Catholics, who don't know him and have never heard it before don't know the chaplet of the Divine Mercy or the indulgence, the plenary indulgence associated with going to confession and receiving Holy Communion on Divine Mercy Sunday. Uh, Last year I worked all summer long on a commentary and recitation on the six notebooks in the diary of St. Faustina, what I tried to do was to call out uh, what I think are the most important passages in our Lord's message to St. Faustina and to the whole world, and to put them in some kind of a topical, chronological order. And uh, I found it to be a daunting task, because there are 1,280 entries in St. Faustina's diary, and there are 640 pages. But I really felt compelled to do it. I felt that it's something that I had to do, and I didn't really know why, but uh, it's clear to me now, 
because you may know that uh, just yesterday, Pope Francis officially declared the year 2016 as the Jubilee Year of Mercy. And it is a most significant year for the whole church and for the entire world, believe me. I think it's even more significant when you consider what is coming in 2017. Now, Pope Benedict XVI said that he believed that 2017 would be a very, very significant year for the church. He didn't say exactly what significance it would have, but if you think of what is coming in just the span of one month, the month of October of 2017, it's kind of astonishing. In October of 2017, we will observe, for example, the 100th anniversary of our Blessed Mother's final apparition at Fatima. And the final, uh, well, the miracle of the sun, witnessed by more than 70,000 people. We'll also observe the 100th anniversary of the start of the Bolshevik Revolution and the spread of worldwide atheistic communism, which is bearing its rotten fruits even now. And it will also be the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Revolt. Now, there is no such thing as coincidence in the realm of divine providence, right? Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen uh, used to say, before the hand of God comes down upon the world, it always comes down upon the church. And he used to say that history has proven that calamitous events come upon the church in 500 year intervals. So if Bishop Sheen, who in my mind was certainly a prophetic man, was right, um, we're just about to. And believe me, my brothers and sisters, we are asking for it. So I felt like I had to get this commentary done and um, I'm putting the finishing touches on it and hopefully, God willing, we'll get it recorded sometime this summer. So you pray for me and pray that I'm able to, uh, to finish that up in time for the Jubilee year. Now because our Lord's message to St. Faustina is so incredibly important, and our Lord's own words are so infinitely more important than anything that I can stand up here and say to you. I want to summarize part of the message for you again today. And I'm going to read this to you, quote this to you, uh, word for word. Exactly. To St. Faustina, Jesus said this. My daughter, tell the whole world about my inconceivable mercy. I desire that the Feast of Mercy be a refuge and a shelter for all souls especially for poor sinners. On that day, the very depths of my tender mercy are open. I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the fount of my mercy. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishments. On that day, all the divine floodgates through which grace flows are opened. Let no soul fear to draw near to me, even though its sins be as scarlet. My mercy is so great that no mind, be it of man or of angel, will be able to fathom it throughout all eternity. Write down at once what you hear. You will prepare the world for my final coming. I am sending you 
with my mercy to the people of the whole world. I do not want to punish suffering mankind, but I desire to heal it, pressing it to my merciful heart. I use punishment when they themselves force me to do so. My hand is reluctant to take hold of the sword of justice. Before the day of justice, I am sending the day of mercy. Write this. Before I come as the just judge, I am coming first as the king of mercy. My heart overflows with great mercy for souls and especially for poor sinners. If only they could understand that it is for them that the blood and water flowed from my heart as from a fount overflowing with mercy. For them I dwell in the tabernacle as the king of mercy. I desire to bestow my graces upon souls, but they do not want to accept them. You at least come to me as often as possible and take these graces they do not want to accept. In this way you will console my heart. Souls who spread the honor of my mercy I shield through their entire lives. And at the hour of death, I will not be a judge for them, but the merciful Savior. At that last hour, a soul has nothing to defend itself except my mercy. Happy is the soul that during its lifetime immersed itself in the fountain of mercy, because justice will have no hold upon it. Daughter, when you go to confession, to this fountain of my mercy, the blood and water which came forth from my heart always flows down upon your soul and ennobles it. Immerse yourself entirely in my mercy with great trust, so that I may pour the bounty of my grace upon your soul. When you approach the confessional, know this, that I myself am waiting there for you. I am only hidden by the priest. But I myself act in your soul. Here the misery of the soul meets the God of mercy. My mercy is greater than your sins and those of the entire world. Who can measure the extent of my goodness? For you I descended from heaven worth. For you I allowed myself to be nailed to the cross. For you I let my sacred heart be pierced with a lance, thus opening wide the source of my mercy for you. Come then with trust to draw graces from this fountain. I never reject a contrite heart. Your misery has disappeared in the depths of my mercy. Hand over to me all your troubles and griefs, and I shall heap upon you all the treasures of my grace." At this holy time of the year, as we celebrate the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. The Church calls on us in a special way to take the time to, to meditate, to think seriously about what God has done for us, what God expects of us in return, what our response to God's sacrificial and merciful love has got to be. We are called to think specifically about the mystery, the theology of redemption. And first of all, a little considered fact. A fact that few people stop to reflect on sometimes in the course of a lifetime. The awesome fact that God did not have to redeem this world. Did you ever think about that? God did not have to create us, nor did God have to redeem us. 
God doesn't have to do anything precisely because God is God. God's saving work in the world is totally merciful, totally gratuitous, we say. Theoretically, after the fall of Adam and Eve, after the reality of original sin and humanity's rebellion against God, God could have abandoned us. God could have left us to ourselves. God could have cast us off, left us to our own sinfulness, our selfishness, our pride, our disordered passions and all the like. But his merciful love would not permit that. God chose to reconcile us to his friendship and to his grace and to do that in a way that would at the same time uphold and satisfy God's honor, God's justice. God's answer was the best thing ever to happen to us. The best thing ever to happen to the world, the incarnation. God became man. God took on human flesh in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and Mary's virginal womb became like uh, the bridal chamber where heaven and earth, divinity and humanity were joined together, wed in a kind of mystical marriage. But God did not have to become man. God did not have to send His only begotten Son, His eternal Word, Jesus Christ, to die in order to redeem this world. Again, in theory, God could have redeemed the world in any way that He saw fit to do it. In fact, God could have chosen to do it the easy way, the painless way. God could have redeemed this world with a snap of the fingers or the wave of a hand or the blink of an eye. A single word, a single divine command would have done it had that been God's will. You see, a single divine action is of infinite value. A single sacrificial act of Jesus Christ that God-man would have been sufficient to wipe away the sins of the whole world. But it was the Father's will that His Son should redeem us through His obedience. Obedience and suffering. Suffering in the most bloody and painful kind. It was God's will there should be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Why blood? Why the cross? Why did our Lord have to endure the horror, the agony of Calvary the way that He did? It is because, simply put, Suffering is always the ultimate test of true love. You see, one loves only as much as one is willing to suffer for the ones who are loved. And the cross of Jesus Christ and his sacred heart stand as the undeniable proof of God's infinite love for every soul he brings into this world and an everlasting reminder of the horror of sin. The source The instrument of the divine mercy is the cross of Jesus Christ. We say that the cross is a sign like no other sign. In it there is a power like no other power. The cross is a sign of death that gives life. And the cross shows us not just the reality of Christ's infinite love for us, 
It shows us the passionate intensity of that love that led him to be abandoned, betrayed, denied, scourged, mocked and crucified to the shedding of the last drop of his blood. This is the price of the divine mercy. I want to speak a little bit uh, this afternoon about the price that our Lord had to pay to purchase for us sanctifying grace and the mercy of God. I want to speak a bit about the cross and crucifixion. Historians tell us that crucifixion was one of the most terrible, painful, agonizing forms of execution ever devised in human cruelty. The Roman writer Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and horrible torture. The Roman historian Tacitus called it a torture fit only for slaves. Crucifixion was so terrible, in fact, that Roman law actually made it illegal to inflict it on any Roman citizen. Now, the practice of execution by crucifixion began in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. The ancient Persians believed that the earth and even the ground itself was sacred to their pagan gods. So when criminals were executed, they had to be executed by being lifted up above the earth. Or else the ground itself would be defiled and their gods would be angered. The Phoenicians in North Africa learned the practice of crucifixion from the Persians. The Romans learned it from the Phoenicians. It was so awful that the Romans reserved it only for the people that they considered to be the scum of the earth. Runaway slaves. Rebels. Violent criminals. The worst kind of criminals. The worst of the worst. And that is exactly the way that they treated our Lord. The scripture says, he who had no sin was made sin for us. The Romans had the practice of crucifixion down to a ritual. When the Roman procurator sentenced someone to be crucified, the sentence was carried out immediately. Never a delay. The condemned man was taken from the place of judgment, made to carry his own cross. Ordinarily, the cross beam was placed upon his shoulders. The condemned man was placed in the middle of a phalanx of Roman soldiers. The phalanx was uh, an open square, and the condemned man was made to walk through the streets, usually by an indirect winding route, and uh, the Romans meant for that to have two effects. First, to wear down the victim, to drive the victim to physical exhaustion. And then to make the biggest possible public spectacle as a warning to the people. What would happen to anyone who ran afoul of the Roman Empire? Crucifixion was a diabolical tactic of intimidation meant to keep the populace in a state of constant fear, terror. And it did. 
There was always one Roman soldier who led the procession carrying a sign. And on the wooden sign, there was written the accusation the crucified man was condemned for. When they reached the place of execution, the wooden sign was nailed to the top of the cross. Outside of the city of Jerusalem, the condemned man was led to the top of the hill called Golgotha. The name, of course, that means the place of the skull. And it was well named because the hill itself was literally shaped like a skull. Once there, the cross was laid out on the ground. The victim was stretched out on it and nailed to it. The cross was hoisted up. The base of the cross was dropped into a hole already dug for it, and the victim was left hanging five or six feet above the earth. They're left to die. Left to die by whatever form of death came first. The crucified person first suffered from dehydration. Dehydration set in very quickly. The crucified victim experienced a horrific thirst that could only be described as having a mouth full of hot sand. Some died of exposure, being left out in the open to bake in the hot sun or freeze in the cold night if it was winter. Many died of a sheer loss of blood. Some, like our Lord, was scourged before being crucified. Now, if you have ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, you have a good understanding of what the Roman scourging was truly like. The Roman scourge was not just a whipping. The Roman scourge called the flagrum was a steel rod or a wooden rod. And attached to that rod would be leather thongs. Attached to the leather thongs would be sharpened pieces of metal or sharpened pieces of bone. And the ends of the thongs were laid, weighed down by lead balls which caused the sharpened metal or bone to cut more deeply into the flesh. The Roman flagrum had the effect of tearing human flesh literally to pieces. And with the nail wounds, of course, the loss of blood could be massive. That alone often was enough to bring death. Many died of suffocation when they became simply too exhausted to raise their bodies up on the cross so they could keep on breathing. Some victims were known to have hung for a week or more on the cross and died stark raving mad. Whatever way death came, crucifixion was the worst that humanity had to offer. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Now historians have written that there in Jerusalem there was a group of holy, devout, and merciful women like Veronica who went to every crucifixion and they would always at least attempt to give drugged wine to the condemned men to deaden the horrible pain. The Gospel tells us that when drugged wine was offered to our Lord, He refused to take it. Because the sinless, spotless Lamb of God had to suffer pain and agony at its worst. He had to endure death in its most bitter form. This was the price of our salvation. This was the ransom paid for our souls. 
This was the horror of sin. This was the depth of His love and His mercy. I've heard it said that if you were the only sinner in the world in need of redemption, if you were the only soul in the world that needed to be saved, God still would have become man. Jesus Christ would still have come into this world to die for you, for you alone. That is the infinite value of a single soul in the sight of Almighty God. The cross shows us that there is no limit to God's love, there is no end to His mercy, and there is no contradiction between God's mercy and God's justice. Many people seem to be confused about this. But uh, it's important to remember that both God's mercy and God's justice emanate from His infinite perfections. When we see the cross with the eyes of faith, we know the cross is the source of our joy, it is the source of our peace, and the source of our peace is the sure knowledge that God loves us. Mother Teresa of Calcutta used to say, when you see the crucifix, you know how much Jesus loved us. When you see him in the Blessed Sacrament, you understand how much Jesus loves us now. The cross shows us there is no limit to God's love, and at the same time, there is no limit to humanity's capacity for cruelty, evil, malice, brutality, and spiritual blindness. Remember when our Lord was hanging on the cross, the Pharisees kept on throwing insults at Him because the world will always mock what it does not understand. And the world will never understand the power of love. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love. The Pharisees were taunting our Lord. They spewed out one last bit of venom, one last challenge. They called out, If you were the Son of God, come down from that cross. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. They wanted to see a show of power because power is the only thing that the world and worldly men will ever understand. But we believe in Jesus Christ precisely because he did not come down from the cross. Of course he had the power. He is the incarnate Word of God. He said, I have the power to lay down my life and take it up again. He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He once said, all power in heaven and on earth has been given over to me. He had the power to come down from the cross. He had the power to call down those twelve legions of angels. Uh, He had the power to force them all to believe and beat them all into submission. Uh, He has the power to cast body and soul into Gehenna. He has got the power to destroy this sinful world and everything that is in it. But that's not the kind of power that God wants to show to us. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He came into this world to show us what God is really like. 
And the power that God wants us to know and experience is the greatest power of all. It is the power of love. A love that has no limits, a love that cannot be conquered, a love the gates of hell is never going to prevail against. God is love. The message of the cross, Scripture says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's a key point, again. The source of our peace is the sure knowledge that God loves us. The source of our peace is the sure knowledge that God loves us. God loves you and God did not bring you into this world to abandon you. And if you think that he would, it can only be because you don't know him. If you've got it, God forbid, get over the idea that your sins are bigger than the mercy of God who sent his only begotten son to die for you. God offers the gift of his mercy. We have got to cooperate with that grace. Now, God is infinitely loving, of course, and God is infinitely merciful, but uh, the two are not always synonymous. Hmm? They differ only in this. Insofar as God's love is unconditional, but God's mercy is not unconditional. God's mercy is contingent, dependent upon our willingness to repent and turn away from sin. Right? Nobody gets a free ride with God. Hmm? Now, whenever we talk about the divine mercy, I think it's necessary also to talk about what are the two worst responses to it? Uh, the two really, really awful responses to the mercy of God. Um, we talk about two extremes, right? Two sins against the virtue of hope. The first, the most rampant today, is presumption. Mm -hmm. uh, presumption is the idea that... God is so loving and so merciful that it doesn't matter what I do. All right? It's the idea that, uh, well, God understands me and God understands the things that I do. God knows that the good things that I do outweigh the bad things. And God is going to focus on the good things that I do. Right? Uh, God is so loving and merciful that God would never really punish me. God would never really let me go to hell. Therefore, I can commit all the sins that I want to. I'm going to heaven anyway. No need to repent. No need to change my ways. Presumption. Right? I've heard presumption called the capital city of hell. And then there is the other extreme, the other sin against the virtue of hope, which is despair. Right? Despair is when someone gives up on the, the mercy of God. Hmm? It's the idea that my sins are too big and too bad and too many for God to forgive. Right? Is that seductive little voice that comes into somebody's head saying, God doesn't really love you. God is not really going to forgive you. It's too late for you. There's no turning back now for you. You've gone too far. So why don't you just give it up? It's no use. 
It's too late for you. No hope for you. No hope for you. No hope for you. Hmm? Despair. Hmm? Listen to the words of Archbishop Fulton Sheen from his book entitled Peace of Soul. The figure upon the cross is not a KGB agent or a Gestapo inquisitor, but a divine physician who only asks that we bring our wounds to him in order that he may heal them. If our sins be as scarlet, they shall be washed white as snow. And if they be as red as crimson, they shall be made white as wool. Was it not he who told us, I say to you, there shall be more joy in heaven over one repentant sinner than over ninety-nine just? In the story of the prodigal son, did he not describe the father as saying, Let us eat and make merry, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again, was lost and is found. Why is there more joy in heaven for the repentant sinner than for the righteous? Because God's attitude is not judgment, but love. End quote. God's attitude is not judgment, but love. I've known many Catholics who have a very distorted notion of what God is really like. Hmm? Um, I've known people who've got the idea that God is kind of out there like the divine traffic cop, waiting to catch you in the act. Like uh, God is the divine state trooper hiding on the other side of the hill with a little radar gun waiting to catch you, breaking the laws. We can pounce on you and say, gotcha. Now you're in mortal sin. Now you're going to hell. Hmm? Of course, that's not God's will for anyone. Um, now, um, um, people always have to be reminded that nothing has changed, right? If you die unrepentant, if you die in a state of mortal sin, you will go to hell. Hell is real, and hell is forever. And the fact of the matter is that no figure of the Bible spoke as much or as often about the reality of hell as did our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. Um, it's very fashionable these days to, to say, um, well, you know, we've got to believe there's a hell, but we don't really have to believe that there's anybody actually there. Well, I guess they forgot to tell our Blessed Mother she didn't get the memo at Fatima when she showed the children a vision of hell and told them souls were falling into hell like snowflakes. Um, you can't play fast and loose with the mercy of God. Mm -hmm. You can't gamble with the salvation of your soul. You could lose it. But that's not God's will for anybody. God is that loving, merciful Father of the Gospel waited with open arms for the prodigal son to come home, and when he did, he said, Rejoice with me, the son of mine was dead, and now he's alive again. He's lost and he's found. Think of the father's words to the prodigal son. Hmm? Um, why did the father say what he said? The son of mine was dead, now he's alive again? Of course, the prodigal son wasn't dead, he wasn't physically dead, he was spiritually dead. Dead in mortal sin, and the divine mercy brought him back to life again. The mercy of God is often called God's greatest attribute. The mercy of God, we say, is deserved by none but available to all, won for us by the shed blood of our Lord and Savior on the cross. 
In our Gospel reading on Divine Mercy Sunday, we celebrate the institution of the most powerful channel of God's mercy. The Sacrament of Penance. The Sacrament of Confession, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, positively, the best source of peace there is in the whole world, say what you will. And of course, our Lord gave us the sacrament of his mercy on that first Easter Sunday evening when he appeared to the apostles in the upper room after his resurrection. And uh, we read about this in our gospel this morning. The gospel of St. John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. Now, no doubt uh, you've heard these verses many times before, but I'll ask you to listen again carefully now to try to draw out the deeper meaning. Uh, listen specifically for the word peace. The words of St. John. On the evening of that first day of the week, the doors were locked with the disciples, were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain, they retained. Now, our Lord's words in the Gospel show us clearly that there is a link, an inseparable link, a divine connection between peace, the Holy Spirit, the reception of the Holy Spirit, and the ministry of reconciliation. Confession for the forgiveness of sins. Our Lord's words in the Gospel presuppose confession. Hmm? Think about this. Our Lord gave his disciples the power to forgive sins in his name. He gave them the power to forgive sins. He did not give them the power to read minds. How could the disciples know which sins to forgive and which to retain if nobody would confess? Right? Um, to me, this has always been kind of like a theological no-brainer. You know? Um, but the beautiful thing about confession is this. Whenever you confess your sins to the best of your ability, the best of your memory, and you haven't held anything back deliberately, and you're truly sorry for all your sins... And you have got that firm purpose of amendment with a valid sacramental absolution. You can always leave that confession with that confident assurance of God's complete forgiveness. And that is something that will always fill you with a sense of inner peace, a sense of relief, and, and the joy that comes with having a clear conscience before God. And I wouldn't trade that for anything in this world. Confession will make a new person out of the one who receives it worthily. Spiritually, a new man, a new woman out of one who receives a valid sacramental absolution. Because that sacramental confession is a personal meeting, a personal encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the incomparable power of that 5, 10, 15 minute sacramental meeting with Christ changes hearts and lives forever. I have seen it time and time again over the years. In my years as spiritual director and confessor, 
some of the most tortured souls that I've ever known have been women who have had abortions. Time goes on. They get older and the reality of what they've done sinks in. Ordinarily, nature and conscience will not allow them to forget. And for many women there will come a living hell, a nightmare of pain and guilt that can go on for a lifetime. Now, a woman making the journey to repentance, the journey back to the Father, and in fact, anyone making that sometimes difficult but ultimately joyful journey to repentance will often experience two big challenges. The first challenge is to be able to truly accept the forgiveness, the mercy that God wants to give to them. To truly believe that God really does love them, that God not only forgives in confession, He also forgets. That God is always ready to forgive when we are ready to repent. That God loves them more than they can ever imagine. God still has a plan for their lives that is going to end in eternal glory if only they cooperate with the graces that God wants to give. But the second and usually the greater challenge is to be able to forgive themselves. God wants you to experience His infinite merciful love and to be able to forgive yourself. You know, none of us can go back and live our lives over again. We cannot live on regrets and memories. We can't change the past, but it doesn't have to wreck anybody's life. You see? Because God is always calling us to conversion of heart, always calling us home, always calling us to repentance and to experience His mercy. Uh, if, if anybody should think that their sins are too big and too bad and too many for God to forgive, um, I always say this. Think of the Apostle St. Paul. The Apostle St. Paul started out a young man, anything but a saint. He was the young Pharisee named Saul. Now, Saul, you'll remember, took part in the killing of St. Stephen. And St. Stephen, before he died, prayed to our Lord to forgive his persecutors, and our Lord heard the prayer of St. Stephen in a big way. Saul had a traumatic conversion experience on the road to Damascus where he was headed to persecute other Christians. Uh, you remember uh, the story in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Saul, on the road to Damascus, was blinded by a flash of light, knocked off of his horse, and he heard the voice of Jesus Christ saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice that our Lord did not say, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He didn't say, why are you persecuting Christians? He said, why are you persecuting me? The church is his mystical body. But think about this. If St. Paul had for a moment doubted the power of God's love and the power of his mercy, 
he could never have gone on to do what he did. He could never have gone on to become one of the two greatest apostles and the greatest missionary in the history of the church. You know, I once heard somebody say, you know, you priests, you priests made up all this stuff about confession because you want to hear all the dirt. You want to hear all the scandal. You want to know how bad people are. Well, you know what? That's a lot of nonsense because um, hearing confessions doesn't tell me how bad people are. Rather, it tends to tell me how good people are. In the sense that, that I have heard so many beautiful and sincere and humble confessions down through the years that have made me stop and give thanks to God there on the spot and say, Lord, give me that kind of humility. Give me the ability to make that kind of a confession. That strengthens my faith. That's edifying to me. Pope John Paul II, in the homily that he gave back in March of 1980, said this, The Apostolate of Confession is surely the best source of peace and joy there is in the whole world. Those confessionals scattered about the world where men declare their sins don't speak of the severity of God, they speak of His mercy. And all those who approach the confessional sometimes, after many years, weighed down with mortal sins, in the moment of getting rid of this terrible burden, find at last a longed-for relief. They find joy and tranquility of conscience which outside confession they will never be able to find anywhere. When I think of this Feast of Divine Mercy, I think of how much we have to be grateful for and to rejoice in. The very idea that all the worst sins you have ever committed, all the sins of your past life, for so many people it seems like they're more than the sands on the shore of the sea, more than the stars in the heavens, can be wiped away, all sins forgiven, all temporal punishment removed, just by receiving the sacrament of penance and receiving Holy Communion on this Divine Mercy Sunday. What an incredible God we have. What a beautiful Savior we have. You know, when I think of so many Catholics who can't be bothered to come to Mass on Sundays, so many Catholics will go on for years without darkening a church door. Or then, you know, there are those millions of others who may come to Mass on Sundays uh, with no real idea of what is going on when the Holy Sacrifice is offered. I think of those who see the practice of their Catholic faith as just like some kind of an obligation to get out of the way, like something you've got to do on a Sunday, you get on with your weekend, rather than being a life to be lived, a Lord and a Savior to be loved. And it makes me shudder. It makes me shudder, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and you know that we have got a lot to pray for. But... I believe that the message of St. Faustina 
is the most important message for the people of our time. And God help us. God help us if the world continues to ignore that message. I believe this, right? There's an old saying in moral theology that both God and the devil hate a vacuum. Where the true God is driven out, the devil will rush in to fill that void and there will literally be held a peg. I can't help but think that the world has rejected the message of divine mercy and now we are seeing the spirit of evil rushing in to fill that void. You see, when you drive out the true God, what happens? That void is going to be filled with the things that are the opposite of God. The things that are the opposite of God's perfections. The opposite of God's love. God's goodness. God's mercy. God's truth. And I would suggest to you that the rise of militant Islamic fundamentalism is a punishment upon this world which has rejected the message and the offer of the divine mercy. If you had to name, to cite, one characteristic of these militant, radical, Muslim terrorist organizations like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and Boko Haram, would you not say that it is their absolute, utter cruelty, their absolute brutality, they are totally merciless. So when you reject the mercy of God, you will get that which is merciless, that which is false, that which is hell on earth. That's what we are asking for, my brothers and sisters in Christ, so we know today on this Divine Mercy Sunday, there is a lot for us to pray for. And may God bless you all. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you.